Brothers and sisters, please, if you would, stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. And as you are standing, I want to invite you to turn to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read in your hearing from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, through the end, not just of the chapter, but of the letter itself. As I read the word of God in our hearing, let us give our attention to the word of the Lord. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. I would wonder, when is the, the last time that perhaps you pulled out a dollar bill and read what was on it? Now, I know some of you don't even know what a dollar bill is, but there was a time in our country when we had paper currency. And, and if you are lucky enough to actually acquire one of these so-called dollar bills and you flip it over, written right there, sort of in the middle, on the back of a dollar bill, are sort of these iconic words, right? In God we trust. In God we trust. But is that true? Really, in, in your own heart, is it, is it really true? Or is this idea of in God we trust, is it just sort of a shallow sentiment, some pinching of the incense to the so-called gods? Let me just ask you directly, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ or are you trusting in cash? What is your God? Is your God your creator and redeemer who through Christ takes away all your sins or... Are you trusting in your bank account, your 401k, your credit cards? Christian, in who or what is your heart resting? We know such a question was an ever-present danger for the congregation that Timothy pastored. Ephesus, which is where Timothy was stationed, it was, as far as we know, one of the richest cities in all of the ancient world. Now, it's true, of course, like in every rich city, there, are, there were the poor there and there were slaves there, but this was a bustling city known for its wealth. And we actually know that there were quite a few members in the church that Timothy pastored who were rich. And we know this because verse 17 addresses them directly, right? Paul writes in verse 17, as for the rich. So make no mistake about it. This passage that is in front of us, it is directed to rich Christians, 
Now, at first glance, we might be tempted to think that we are off the hook. It's very easy for us to say, well, I'm no Jeff Bezos, I'm, I'm no Elon Musk, and so it's, it's very easy to sort of protest. But we need to remind ourselves that, believe it or not, we are rich. But by virtually every metric, we are a rich people. And if you doubt me, just consider this for a moment. Here you are now sitting on cushioned chairs. You are doing so as a thermostat keeps you a comfortable 71 degrees. More than that, you all drove here. Half of you drove here with heated seats. The other half of you drove here with heaters in your car. And after we leave here with full bellies after the potluck, we will all go home to a home that actually has a roof and doesn't have dirt for a floor. And then we will go home to a house that has a pantry that is full of food. So brothers and sisters, whether we're talking about sort of metrics used in the ancient world or even the modern world today, we are rich. And here's the catch. Just because we are used to it doesn't mean that it's not true. So given this reality, the reality that we are a rich people, consider what Paul has already told Timothy in chapter 6 of this letter. You might look back to the warning of verse 5. The warning of imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There are some people today who think that being a Christian means fatter wallets. But that's not so. Or you might remember 1 Timothy 6, 9. There we are cautioned, but those who desire to be rich. Who of us doesn't desire to be rich? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The the warning there is that this longing to be rich, Scripture warns us, this is spiritual suicide. Or you might think of what Paul told Timothy in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And those things included the longing and lusting after riches. And so Timothy was to, to run from that stuff. So my point is, when it comes to a Christian and riches, the stakes are high. And for you and I, as rich Christians, this means that it requires all the more that we be a people of wisdom and humility and faithfulness. Now, with that groundwork laid, when Paul addresses the rich here, he addresses us, He does so by offering two cautions and then two commands. Two cautions and then two commands. Let's start with the cautions. For starters, beware, Paul says, of haughtiness. Of haughtiness. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, it's you and I, charge them, pastor, not to be haughty. And for the sake of clarity, that word haughty means to have an exalted view or an exalted opinion of oneself. 
Brothers and sisters, can we just all be honest and recognize and acknowledge and confess that so often that is exactly what riches do in our hearts? They make us haughty. They make us think that we're something that we're not. John Stott put it very helpfully, wealth often gives birth to vanity. And we see this all the time. Heck, if we're honest, we do this all the time. It's latent in our hearts. We, we jockey for position based on how big our house is compared to someone else's. We pride ourselves on the, the clothes that we wear or the types of vacations that we take. We think we are important because of how much we are worth. Or we might be tempted to think that God is pleased with us because we got this job or that raise or we have such and such a title. But to all of this, we are cautioned, Christian, beware, there is danger lurking here. As Christians, we must be very careful. We must always be vigilant and on guard that we do not become a people who are swollen with pride or conceit. And the reason is, riches or not, no matter whatever rung you are on on the socioeconomic ladder, Christ calls us to be a humble people. And the reason that Christ calls us to be a humble people is because the gospel announces two great truths. On the one hand, we don't save ourselves. I think we need to remind ourselves of this, not just on Sunday mornings. We don't save ourselves. We don't contribute to our salvation at all. In fact, as it has been said, the only thing that we do contribute is what? Our sin. That's what you bring to the table. Other than that, Christ does everything. Christ is the one who took on flesh and became a human being because you and I have made a muck of being a human being. It is also Christ who perfectly obeyed God's law, a law, brothers and sisters, that you and I constantly break. He and He alone died as a sacrifice for our sins. He and He alone was raised from the dead to overcome our sin and death and hell. And it is Christ who has ascended to His Father, where He is seated now at His right hand, making intercession for you and I. So that as you've heard me say, the gospel message is really in a lot of ways Christ doing for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. And so here's the punchline. Not if that is true, but since that is true, how on earth do you and I tend to get fat heads? Rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, there ought to be no haughtiness among us. Then, on the other hand, Christ himself was brought low. He was humbled. And he was humbled, not just to give us an example, but he was humbled to accomplish our salvation. Think about it with me. Think of the descent, if you will. In the incarnation, Christ descends from his heavenly glory, right? He's, he's coming down to us. 
And then, as he's fixed there upon that cross, he, he's treated, he, he comes down even lower as he is treated as a sinner, as he's cursed of God, as he bears in his own body the wrath for the sin that you and I deserve. Right? He, he goes from glory to incarnation to the cross. And after that, his dead, lifeless corpse is placed in the grave. He, he goes down deeper into the heart of the earth. So regardless of your bank account, the caution to the rich in the church is to beware of haughtiness. Beware of haughtiness because you and I have not contributed one ounce to our salvation and the one who accomplished our salvation for us, he was brought low. So how can we be brought up? How can we be haughty? How can we be pride, uh, proud? Haughtiness and Christianity, they are like oil and water. Proud Christian is an oxymoron. But that's not all. There is still a second caution, and it is this. Beware of hope. Let me clarify. Specifically, beware of hope in the uncertainty of riches. Verse 17 warns us again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Christian, how easy is it for you and I to set our hope? On riches. And of course, it's not that we set our hope on riches necessarily, but it's on what riches provide for us, right? We tend to worship the God of mammon, the God of wealth, because of all the promises that this God makes to us. Riches promise, I will protect you, I will provide for you. I will give you safety. I will give you comfort. I will give you happiness. I will be your God if you would but serve me. But by God's grace, I trust the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to see the lies that this false God makes. Wealth, Christian, is a pseudo-savior. On top of that, Riches are utterly unreliable. Our passage uses the language of saying that they are uncertain. That is to say, they're here today and gone tomorrow. Or as you've heard, uh, today's gains are tomorrow's losses. We know this, right? We know that markets crash, that economies tank, that jobs are lost, that bank accounts are drained, that inflation is a thing. We know this. Proverbs 23 warns, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, in other words, when your eyes fix upon wealth or riches, what happens? Well, it is gone, the Proverbs tell us. For suddenly it, wealth, riches, it, springs, it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now, beloved, this idea of trusting in riches and what they offer, it is a serious problem here in the American church. In fact, it might be the most serious problem. Kenneth Kantzer, that's K-A-N-T-Z-E-R, Kantzer. He once served as the editor for Christianity Today. 
he was asked what he thought was the greatest threat facing the American church. His response caught me off guard. This is what he said. It's not what you might expect me to say, he answered. It is not liberalism or neo-orthodoxy or wrong views of revelation or inspiration or other controversial points in theology. The most serious problem facing today's church is materialism. Materialism not as a political theory, but as a way of life. And what we have to understand is that what cancer calls materialism, you know what we call it? The American dream. So again, I would ask you this morning, what are you hoping in? What is your foundation? Is it riches? Is it your comfortable home? Your pension? Your health insurance? The fact that if something bad happens tomorrow, it's okay because you have a diversified portfolio? Really, at the end of the day, who is your Savior? And know this, Christ is a covenant-keeping Savior who shed His blood to redeem you, to forgive you your sins, to promise you eternal life, and to secure for you resurrection glory. The alternative is riches. And riches are uncertain. They lie and they make false promises. They don't love you. They can't take away your sin. And when you die, they will quickly leave you. Or you will quickly leave them. One is a true Savior. The other is a pseudo-Savior. Now, those are the two cautions to rich Christians like us. Beware of the haughtiness produced by riches and beware of hoping in riches. And now, Scripture turns to two commands to these same rich Christians, to you and I. First, rich Christians are to be helpful. Helpful. That's my summary, really, of verse 18. We read, they, again, this is speaking of rich Christians, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So, so we are, as rich Christians, we are not to be hoarders, but helpful. We're to do good to those who are around us. It's one thing for you and I to be rich when it comes to our bank account. It is quite another for you and I to be rich in good works. And that, my friends, verse 18 this should be the epithet of the rich Christian. I would have you notice in passing as well that the command here for the rich Christian is not, I repeat, not to divest himself of all his riches. Or maybe another way to say it would be this. To repent of materialism doesn't mean we embrace asceticism. That's not what Scripture calls us to do. What it does mean is that we use the riches that God has provided for us to help others, right? The call is not to liquidate everything, to burn it, and then move it to a monastery. But we are called upon Christ to lovingly help and serve others. And before you and I do what we tend to do when we hear things like this, we start kind of white-knuckling. We start clenching up. Let me give you the foundation for this. 
Why ought we as Christians to be generous? Why ought we to help? And the answer is this, because our God is generous. Brothers and sisters, God the Father has shared His love with us. God the Son has shed His blood on our behalf. God the Holy Spirit has deigned to live with us and comfort us. So, so gospel math works like this. The triune God is generous. He is a self-giving God who, who pours Himself out for His people. And therefore, as His people we too should be generous and self-giving. In fact, this is one of the reasons that God makes rich Christians so that they will help others. The second command for rich Christians is to be heavenly-minded. Pick it up with me in verse 18. Rich Christians are to store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is no doubt reminiscent of Christ's own famous words from the Sermon on the Mount, right? Our Lord warns us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You look at Matthew 6, you go, what is Christ saying? You look at 1 Timothy 6, and you go, well, what is Paul getting at? Simply this. We are to be a heavenly-minded people. We are to live our life now for that life then. We are to use the riches that God has given us for the riches of the kingdom. Which means we have to be on guard that we don't be so mesmerized with the trinkets of this world that we forget the glory of heaven. That we guard against being hypnotized by all that glitters so that we are no longer in awe of the glory of our Savior. The call of Scripture to the rich Christian is to invest in glory, to invest in resurrection, to invest in the kingdom, to use your earthly treasure now for the future then. That's the thrust of verse 19. It's like this. It's calling us to live as Christians, not just when it comes to our private devotions or when it comes to church, but also to live like Christians when it comes to our budget and our checkbook. Now, brothers and sisters, we've surveyed these two cautions and these two commands. What I want to do now very briefly is just sort of zoom out and help us all think a bit more biblically about wealth. So you might call this just sort of an excursus, a little, a little biblical theology of wealth. We, we want to think God's thoughts after him, especially when it comes to riches. So while not exhaustive, here are five realities regarding riches. Number one, God is the source of of wealth. It all comes from him. The end of verse 17 puts it this way, God who richly provides us with everything. So who provides us with stuff? Who provides us with riches? Who provides us with things? 
God does. And you might notice the, you might catch the play on words. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who what? Richly provides us with everything. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not just a source of redemption, but also riches. Which is why, as Christians, you and I should be marked. Something that that sort of should characterize us is that we are a thankful people. Because we recognize that everything we have, no matter how little or how much, it comes to us from our Father. Number two, wealth is not inherently evil. Don't swing the pendulum to the other extreme. Don't go from, well, the American dream is materialistic and antichrist, all the way to wealth is inherently evil. That is just simply not true. We saw back in 1 Timothy 6, 9, that it was the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But that is the love of money, not money itself. And it is the root of all kinds of evil, not every single evil. I I suppose what I, I want us to avoid here is falling into the trap of the false teachers and their false teaching that we saw all the way back in 1 Timothy 4. Verses 1 through 5. You may recall that it was the false teachers who said that blessings from God had to be rejected. And specifically in the context there, those blessings were marriage and meats. The false teachers said, you know, you need to live an ascetic lifestyle. You need to be celibate. You need to fast all the time. You need to not eat this. But that is not the Christian position. These blessings are not in and of themselves evil. Rather, marriage is good. Meat is good. Money is good. Or to say just a bit differently, the rub here isn't with wealth per se. The problem is with the sinful attitudes that exploit and use wealth in the wrong way. Marriage is good but you can turn it on its head and make it sinful. Food is good, but you can turn it on its head and make it sinful. And the wealth that God provides us is good, but you'd better believe you can twist it and make it sinful. That brings us to reality number three regarding riches. God intends us to enjoy His gifts. I'm getting that from the end of verse 17. God, again, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Christian, if you are rich, you need not feel guilty about it. Now, there's some caveats, right? Assuming that you are not greedy, and assuming that you did not acquire this wealth in ungodly ways, right? If you're like knocking off a 7-Eleven or something, we have to talk about that. But but assuming that, that you are not a greedy person... You don't need to feel guilty if you own a home or have a car or have a pantry full of food. It's it's one thing for you and I as Christians to thank God for the gifts He has given us. It is another thing for you and I to enjoy the gifts that our Heavenly Father gives us. God wants us to enjoy the things that He gives us. We're, We're just coming on the wake of Christmas. 
And I know that many of you, like we do in our family, we have, we have little ones. And you get to that age, I don't know when it is, but you realize all of a sudden that the best part of Christmas is not getting a gift, but watching your little one open a gift. And none of us give gifts to our kids to punish them. None of us give gifts to our children on Christmas and watch them open it and go, all right, give it back. You don't get it. We give gifts because we love our kids. And we give gifts to our kids so that they would enjoy them. And God gives gifts to his kids so that we would enjoy them too. Number four, your riches are not just for you. I would once again draw your attention to verse 18. They, the rich Christians, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be, here's the words, generous and ready to share. So, yes, enjoy them and bless God for his kindness to you. But, Christian, don't white-knuckle them. God pours out his gifts on you so that you, in turn, can pour out those gifts on others. That's like the economy of grace, Back to Christmas and our little ones. It, it, we, if we get, when we give gifts to our little children, we expect them to share those gifts. It is unhealthy if they take that gift and they never share with their brother or sister or their friends. That is not what we want. We give them gifts so that they can share them. God gives us gifts so we can share them. And again, God is generous. And so his people ought to be generous as well. With that ringing in your ears, let me just issue something of a warning. If this idea, the idea that the riches that God gives you aren't only for you, if that hits your ears like nails on a chalkboard, if if that sort of puts you in the position of a cat being forced into a bathtub, then let me just say this. You might need to take inventory spiritual inventory. Denny Burke has said, an unwillingness to be generous with others in need reveals to what extent idolatry has entered into a wealthy person's heart. So Christian, you may need to repent. Should you be wise and discerning? No doubt. Should we exercise caution and do our best to distinguish between helping and enabling when it comes to benevolence? Of course, that all goes without saying. But none of this means that being a Scrooge is fruit of the Spirit. It's not. That brings us now to our fifth and final reality regarding riches. True and lasting riches are found in Christ and in Christ alone. To return to an earlier theme, I would ask you, will your 401k cleanse your heart? Will your so-called diversified portfolio remove your guilt? Can your bank account, no matter how big it gets, can it actually forgive you your sins? No, of course not. Only Christ can do this. Dollar bills can't fit you for heaven. Only Christ's righteousness can. And Christ gives us his righteousness by giving himself up on a cross for you and I. And I would just remind you, isn't that the ultimate payment? 
Christian. Christ was a willing sacrifice to pay for the sin that you and I owed. This is what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is getting at. Christ became poor. Christ gave up everything to redeem you and I. He died. He submitted to the wrath of God. He was cursed on our account. This is what Christ has done to forgive you your sins. And everything else, including all the riches of this world, everything else should pale in comparison to that, to the very riches of Christ. And these riches, these gospel blessings that Christ so generously and liberally bestows upon his people, He does so as we look to Him, not with hands full of of worldly riches, but as we look to Christ with the empty hands of faith. In other words, all the gifts of the gospel, all that Christ won for you in His life, and all that He purchased for you in His death, all of those riches, each and every one of them, every syllable, are yours by grace alone through faith alone. This is why all over the New Testament, Scripture goes out of its way, particularly Romans 4, to labor to show us that we receive all that Christ is as a gift. And that's because that's exactly what redemption is. It is a gift of gospel grace. Now, speaking of these empty hands of faith and the gospel of Christ, we do need to say something about these closing words to Timothy. And they do relate. If verses 17 through 19 is a word to the rich... Then verses 20 and 21 are a word to the pastor. And so given all that has been said, not just this morning, but throughout this entire first letter that Paul has wrote to Timothy, he ends it with two encouragements. He says to Timothy, the pastor, you must safeguard and you must shun. You must safeguard and you must shun. And while these words are directed specifically to pastors, elders, I'm going to do my best to make some application to you as well. When it comes to safeguard, I'm getting that from the beginning of verse 20. What is Timothy called to do? Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard it. Keep it. Preserve it. Keep your eye on the prize. What is this deposit that has been entrusted to Timothy? Well, it is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just as Paul has exhorted Timothy throughout this entire letter, from the first words to the last words, he concludes with this same exhortation. Timothy, as a pastor, as the man of God that you are, you have a great responsibility. You must safeguard the gospel. Now, practically speaking, that means that Timothy, the pastor, must do three things. And I think that these three things also spill over to us as a church. To safeguard the gospel means to proclaim it, to pass it on, and to protect it. So, in the face of hostility, in the face of harassment, in the face of persecution, 
in the face of classmates who might not like you, in the face of neighbors who might think you're weird, in the face of coworkers who will no longer invite you to lunch. The gospel must be proclaimed. Now, for Timothy in this context, it most certainly meant physical suffering. It was going to cost Timothy something. And brothers and sisters, I assure you, the more faithful you are in proclaiming the gospel, it will cost you something as well. But let us always be mindful that the crown of thorns always precedes the crown of glory. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Christ, the sinless and most faithful, was fixed upon a cross. We should expect nothing less as his followers. Then, in the presence of the church, and in the presence of your family, and especially in the presence of young men, young men are under 40, just so you know, you must pass on the faith. The gospel can't die with you, Timothy. The gospel can't die with the preaching pastor in a local church. The gospel must be passed on, which means that the leadership in the church and the members in the church must be discipling one another. We need elders. We need men who will preach and pray. We need men who will labor and love. We need men who will equip and encourage and evangelize. The faith must be passed on. It's one thing to safeguard the gospel. It's another thing to pass it on. And you young men, you men under 40, you men who have young children in your home, it starts with you. It starts with you carving out time after dinner, before bed, systematically reading God's Word, teaching your children the catechism, praying with them. By the time our kids hit 10 years old, They should know the Ten Commandments. They should know the Lord's Prayer. They should know the Apostles' Creed. This is the foundation that historic Protestant and Reformed theology is built upon. I can't do that for your children. You fathers, you men must do that. That means you might not play as much golf. You won't get to do video games as much. You won't get to go out with your buddies and drink beer. That's fine. You made that decision when you got married. And you made that decision when you had kids. You must pass on the faith. The most influential man in the life of your son or daughter should be you. It must be you. And it is you, whether you know it or not. You must pass on the faith. And then finally, in the wake of false teachers and pseudo-saviors and bootleg Christs, Timothy is called to protect the gospel. And the reason that we protect the gospel is because the gospel is a precious gift. To use the language of verse 20, it has been entrusted to you, Timothy. It has been entrusted to the church, not to false teachers, not to wolves in sheep's clothing, but to you, Timothy, to you, pastor. So guard it. Keep it safe. Now this exhortation to safeguard the gospel leads to the pastor's second encouragement, and that is to shun That's basically what Paul is getting at there in the middle of verse 20. Avoid or shun or stay away from what? 
the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Why? For by professing it, verse 21, some have swerved from the faith. See how serious all of it is? Sometimes people, this is true of Christians in the church and those outside of the church, they wonder, at least from their perspective, why it always looks like Christians are arguing over Bible doctrines. I had a conversation with a lady just a couple of months ago who's not a Christian, and that was sort of the thing that put her off. She, she couldn't understand why we cared so much about what God's Word said. Well, you want to know why we care? Because this stuff matters. Because truth matters. Because Christ matters. Because eternity matters. And sometimes people so zig when they're supposed to zag that they will zig themselves right out of the Christian faith altogether. And so Paul's point here is this. Pastor, and again, I think this spills over to you. You need to shun, avoid, stiff arm anything that will distract you from or dilute or destroy the gospel from taking root in your heart. And I think this is a a pertinent exhortation to us today, given the fact that on our iPhones and on our earbuds or whatever these things are that you can tell I'm over 40 now, whatever these things are that you young people have, we are exposed to a tsunami of information. And we need to be very careful that we don't get caught up in sort of absorbing things that are not good for our soul. Things that are irreverent babble, things that are contradictions, this new thing, this fad, this sort of stuff. The Christian ought to have enough discernment to go, I'm not even going to waste my time with this stuff. I have known pastors and PhDs and Christian church members who are so smart, they're dumb as a rock. So avoid that stuff. Be content, Christian, to have Christ. Be content to have Christ crucified for you. Well, as we come to the end of this sermon and coming to the end of this letter, I'm looking forward to starting a new sermon series with you on the Psalms. I would be remiss at this point, though, if I didn't ask you, is Christ enough? Are you resting in Him? Do you really trust Him and treasure Him? Please be clear, I did not ask. I did not say, do you want to go to heaven? Not, do you want to see loved ones? Not, do you want to be rich? Not, do you want to have pain no more? Who says no to that stuff? Only weirdos. But do you want Christ? Does your heart burn to know Him and to see Him and to please Him? And does it wound your soul that your heart doesn't burn to know Him and see Him and please Him as it should. If that is you, then know this. Christ is a perfect Savior, not a pseudo-Savior. The gospel of Christ is for sinners, and it remains for sinners like you and I. Christ loves you. He has died for you. And He has promised that He will never, no, never cast out any 
who come to him. So I would invite you to rest in him today. Rest in the utter sufficiency of Christ on your behalf. Join with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us what we were made for. You have given us Christ. You have given us a Redeemer. You have given us your Son. But we confess to you this morning that there is much that would distract us, much that would steal our hearts away from resting in Christ. And so it is our prayer this morning that as your word is preached and as in a couple of moments when we gather around the table, that you would re-energize our faith, that we would lean afresh into the promises of the gospel, that your spirit would cause these truths to be sweet in our souls. We ask these things in the Savior's name. Amen.